Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Oh, my God. Oh, man. Oh, that was fun. Thank you. Seriously, not many women could bring me to orgasm in front of my mother. I wouldn't think. The great boss has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, when was the last time you made a wrong choice in a moral dilemma? Probably just agreeing to do these fucking movie episodes that you make me do. And it's a dilemma only because I love you so much, my dear friend Tamler, that I, I want to make you happy, especially now that you're like sick and... I don't know what the hell is even wrong with you. What did you tsetse fly bite you? What well, you're like laid up in bed? Well, so <laughs> before we get into all all about you, I should I didn't say that I'm David Pizarro from Cornell University. Oh yeah, and I should also say that uh, last time I said I'm from Duke. This time I'll say I'm from UNC Chapel Hill because I'm technically in both places. So okay, back to your ailments. Well, I don't want to get into them because this last <laughs> development was uh, let's just say I had to spend like three days in the hospital last week. So. This is oh, this semester has gotten off to a somewhat rough start. <laughs> you really, you really should take more care of yourself. Like I don't want to lose you. I don't. I'm, who's going to host the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're we're one to two episodes away from you having to find a new permanent guest. Host. <laughs> And then you'll never have to do new, another movie podcast again. Although it's this one's a little easier for me because because of the nature of what we're going to talk about, which is movies that contain moral dilemmas. Yeah, right? that's uh, the best um, movies of all time that contain <laughs> uh, that contain or feature that kind of center around one or more ethical dilemmas. And we'll talk about what that means because there's a there's a, I have a funny story. Well. I'll say it's a story, and you tell you can tell me if it's funny or not about about what what it means to say that something's a moral dilemma. So, but t- before so, before, so you know, in in moral psychology, one of the really dominant papers that we've talked about is Jonathan Haidt's paper on the emotional dog and its rational tail. And one of the findings that he has are these from these moral dumbfounding studies. Um, people who are familiar with the podcast have heard us talk about this before. And so you give people these scenarios, like Mark and Julia, brother and sister, and they want to have sex, um, or you say. Uh, a man every week goes and buys a chicken and masturbates into it. Right. Um, and for some for some reason, I was, so I was giving a talk here in the Duke Social Psychology um, uh, area brown bag, and I somehow it came up. Like this scenario came up, and I said, "By the way, it's not a moral dilemma <laughs> because Unless for some you reason think that there's some people- sort of moral." <laughs> Masturbating into a chip. Like a dilemma is you're pulled sort of equally in both ways, you know, like it's an approach approach or an avoid avoid. Like I don't it says something about you if you think that that you're constantly resisting the urge to to masturbate into a dead chicken or or, Well but 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 the crucial thing, right? I mean I guess we can get into it really quickly now, but the crucial thing is that you're pulled morally in two directions. Maybe I don't know, for all I know it's masturbating into a chicken is is all is great. Maybe it's fantastic. (laughs) 
Netflix. Even <laughs> if it is just a fantastic experience that we're all missing out on, or, or many of us are missing out on, that, that doesn't – I don't know if you – I'd hesitate to call it moral. So yeah, so moral dilemma has has a definition for us. A are couple of mine abused like the, the definition. Are we going to get a lot of angry emails about this explaining exactly uh, why it is really uh, an ethical choice? <laughs> it's not wrong. Leave me alone. I'm tired of Jonathan Hyde and his crusade against necrophilia, zoophilia, whatever. There's a sort of interesting meta moral dilemma involving movies going on right now in the world of cinema. It's your boy. Your it's, boy. It's my boy. Uh, my boy, Woody Allen, who nobody has ever thought was a especially nice guy. I don't think anyone thought this was a humanitarian. <laughs> or right. I mean, he's always been... A, that's part of, one of what makes him great is that he's so messed up and he brings that kind of personal neuroses and, and just general sort of unpleasantness and, and despair to his movies a lot of the time, but in a funny way because he's also just a very funny uh, comedian. And, and, you know, there was this whole thing with Soon Yi who many people think was his adopted daughter, but was, wasn't. He, she was Andre Praven's adopted daughter with Mia Farrow. Right. And it was creepy. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was creepy. It was weird. I had blocked out that he had taken nude pictures of her when she was still in, in her teens, but legal, you know, legally in her <laughs> teens, like 18 or 19 or whatever. But Or somewhere between it – it's, it's weird. It was like somewhere between 18 or 19 or 21 because they don't know her exact age. <laughs> Uh, oh really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. So wow. Yeah. How how handy. It, but you know, like that's by Hollywood standards, especially since they've been together for like thirty years. If you're gonna complain about that, you're gonna complain about almost everybody in Hollywood. You know, I mean, are you gonna bitch every time you watch a Jack Nicholson movie? <laughs> God knows. <laughs> fucked up thing that guy that dude is done. Yeah, i mean there's a good discussion to be had about artists like th this came up actually with the uh ender's game who? uh the orson scott card who wrote ender's game oh he was yeah. like he, he's like famously just a dick about hom homophobia and he's anti-gay marriage and it's like you're right in one sense if we start judging uh, artists by their personal lives we would have to cut out a whole lot of art from our lives so like, yeah there, there's no doubt about that i mean and you know look uh roman polanski is um, a really interesting case when it comes to this because unlike the woody allen it's not recent but the, the recent woody allen flare-up uh, it's not really in dispute what roman polanski did whether or not he did it um he was with a 13 year old girl in, in Jack Nicholson's hot tub and had anal sex with her. <laughs> this is right after Chinatown or right around Chinatown, maybe when they were filming Chinatown, which is one of the best movies of the last 50 years. I mean, probably in the top five or six movies of the last 50 years. Uh, yeah. Well, we can talk about that later. I, I watched it late in life and I don't feel that way, but yeah. Oh my God. That's crazy. <laughs> That's insane. But anyway, I think it's as close to just a, perfect movie like, okay this isn't about china yeah so this is about woody <laughs> allen uh so but but you know roman polanski is not a personal filmmaker like woody allen is and if you grow if you grew up with him like i did and i think and like a lot of my friends did it's silly in some in some sense but it's like you had this 
not friendship with him. You, you know, you related to his movies. You related to some of the things he was going through. You related to the philosophical questions that he was considering. And, I mean, if he really molested his seven-year-old daughter, if this happened, that's just, I don't know. There's something about that that's just, I, it's about as bad as it gets. You know, one thing I have to say about this is I never want to hear shit about Kobe Bryant from any uh, from anyone. <laughs> You Lakers fans are unbelievable. That's your takeaway message. That Kobe Bryant can get away with rape now. See, never convicted. Um, <laughs> not a minor. Yeah. Uh, so I was going to get on your case a little bit because on, on Facebook, you know, I noticed when you do post, it was like it was posting the the sort of like, well, let's calm down. It's not clear whether it's true or not. But it's understandable if you're motivated to like somebody. Well, like uh, not only that, that but yeah. OK. But I mean, a couple of things that bother me just about the way this has gone down. You know, I'm not a fan of N- Nicholas Kristoff's role in all this, especially since he's a good friend of Mia Farrow's. I'm generally not a fan of Facebook and Twitter self-righteousness and sanctimony. Uh, I know I'm biased here because of how much I loved Woody Allen growing up. But you know what? This is falling on deaf ears with you. I, I have a friend that I went to high school with who also loves Woody Allen. We used to go see all the movies. We could quote most of Manhattan, Annie Hall, Hannah and her sisters. Uh, I'm not boasting here. But uh, in any case, I, I don't know. I have some complicated feelings about this whole story. So maybe I'll re- record some bonus content with him. Put it out during our off week for anyone who's interested. Because uh, I definitely know you're not in that group. But for now, let's just say that and the reason I post some of this stuff on Facebook is it becomes a lot less clear that this that we should be so sanctimonious and that we should you know immediately assume that he's guilty. Right. You know. Have. So there is what there is one thing that's I think hard to get over, which is when. You you read the description of being molested that she published in the Christoph uh, op-ed. It's so hard to think that it didn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. That that right? You, you I think that, that anybody who who doesn't have strong reason not to believe it reads that and says, "Oh my god, like that guy is a monster." Because why? Because you think to yourself, "Why would anybody make that shit up?" And this is where it really does help to have the research on false memory, which again. Who knows? Like, we have no idea whether it's a false memory. The only thing that false memory research can tell us is that you can create a false memory, right? And so Elizabeth Loftus um, has done, you know, who's the the pioneer in this research. I got to work with her as a postdoc a bit, and my a graduate student at the time, Carol Laney, wrote a nice piece in in the Daily Beast as well on false memories and how easy it is to induce false memories. And so there was in the 80s for a while there was all kinds of allegations that going to this certain kind of therapy people would sort of realize all of a sudden that they had been the victims of of like satanic ritual abuse or sexual abuse by their parents. And it turns out that it's pretty damn easy for a therapist to implant a false memory about that. So it's not that we're sure in any way that it didn't happen. It's that we have to realize that there is, you know, there's a good reason to think that even when it seems convincing and filled with details and all that stuff, that that it's it, it may not necessarily be true. Right? And you know, Mia Farrow, and I'm not saying he didn't give her good reason. She was out of her mind with rage about what Woody right. Allen had done with Soon Yi, which is again, yeah, I, I, is, I I'm yeah. not saying she she doesn't have good reason for that but it's so hard to believe even that she would even plant try to plant this false memory it would have to be that that the therapist that some combined with the therapist combined with 
Right. I think it's important to remember that this can happen. Uh, this kind of false memory implant can happen with fairly good intentions all the way around. Right. So you go to therapy. There's some shit going on in your life. Like you're depressed. You're suicidal. Never Things don't work out right. The therapist says like, well, do you have any memories that you were ever abused as a child? No. Well, you know, not everybody remembers. And so they start asking you. And what they're trying to do, you know – to, to defend them a little bit is is try to figure out what's going on with you. What they don't realize that they're doing is they're planting they're planting the possibility of this. And so through multiple multiple sessions, you start filling in details about your life. Um, you know, so and it's not too hard to do that in the lab. You know, I have a paper with Carolini and and Beth Loftus where we we did this. Um, and so you realize that if you could do it with a few minutes in the lab, you can pretty much do it uh, with lots of time and therapy sessions with someone you trust with nobody ever saying going out of the way to say, hey, you know, it would be really cool if we implanted a false memory of abuse, you know, because because you're right. Like, why would anybody want to remember that? Like, why would you know? Or like, why would anybody want to implant that kind of a horrible thing? You might as well molest somebody if you're going to implant a false. I, I always feel like the memory of the pain is, is right. what's fucked up. <laughs> that, that's what makes this whole story an awful all the way around is there's no good, there's no good answer to this question. There's, nope. a, there's a less bad answer if you like Woody Allen like I do and want to be able to watch his movies – with a clean conscience, you know, <laughs> right. uh, but there is no good. So from but, now on, I'm going to bootleg his movies. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for you, that's, you that's can my... down, download free movies and Kobe Bryant is absolved. of. <laughs> Just kidding. I really have no interest in watching Woody Allen. Movies. <laughs> but here's the problem. So you can't not have an opinion about this. No, I know. And, and I was going to say, like, as, as I was telling you earlier, like my, my reaction has been to remain silent because I have absolutely no idea either way but there is a way in which if you're fully convinced that somebody was raping a seven-year-old remaining silent is an abhorrent well but the point take, is you're right? not yeah. fully convinced right i mean no i oh, joking I aside you're not f- no no I, yeah. i'm not fully convinced at all and it i think that it's just i think it's easy to understand the reaction when there's no reason for sort of a lay person to think that a de- like those details of like you know like why would somebody accuse someone in such detail like it would be a horrible plot for revenge of some sort and and, and nothing in it for Dylan Farrow to make this up right. you know like that's right. the other exactly. thing. that's why it really has to be and Woody Allen said this in his column that he honestly thinks that she believes that this happened and that's to him one of the most heartbreaking things yeah right and she's clearly suffering right she's yeah it really does it really would it, it's such a horrible thing if it's not true it's such a horrible thing if it is true and the fact that we can't really ever know um we'll never you know, know all we can do yeah all we can do is say that there is reasonable doubt and and you know beth loftus has gotten i mean famously has gotten in huge huge battles with clinical psychologists and and other kinds of therapists who argue that that like she is essentially um you know, blaming the victim with with her research, um, right. and yeah. she's had to and 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 a lot of her research in general on the on how bad memory can be and how easy it is to distort is used to get. You know, she wrote a book called Witness for the Defense. Like she is used to defend people who may actually be quite nefarious characters in real life, right? Right. And um, I imagine right. sexual abuse is a high percentage of the things that she's called to testify about, right? Yeah, probably. Yeah. Oof. Yep. But I will say this. She uh, she had a dilemma of her own. She was asked whether or not she was willing to testify a Nazi war criminal had been found in South America. And um, so it, it was, 
it was the case that he had been identified by people who with you know whom he had interacted with in, during Nazi Germany and she was asked to testify on the behalf of the Nazi criminal um to present her her research on how memory can be so easily distorted and as a Jew she it, well you know who knows as somebody who cares deeply about the holocaust well what would you do <sighs> i mean the, the interesting thing you know i i i might want just some i might i might not object to somebody giving the testimony and might might think i had the right to have it be somebody else rather right. than me just, just get, get somebody who didn't switch. have family who was killed in the holocaust you know to testify right. on behalf of this guy and you know and i have to say she is a champion of science and she does not shy away from any of this stuff like her life has been essentially one in which she's constantly had to fight in favor of empirical science um, sometimes in really uncomfortable situations. In this case, she did exactly what you said. She said, you know, I don't think I as a person can do this, but here's the name of somebody who I think can. And, you know, you, you could also you talk joy. about motivated reasoning. You could see her unconsciously. I could see this of myself, too. Not that anyone would call me to testify for pretty much anything, but like of just sort of. Making it sound a little less believable, you know. <laughs> right, right, it. right. Well, you know, these statistics aren't always right. Yeah. <laughs> no, absolutely. I hadn't thought of that, but that that is a real concern. And so, if if you really are a champion of science and you know that your objectivity will fail in these in this case, right. then you even have a good moral, you know, morally principled reason to turn it right. down. I mean, right. I, I think that was the right decision on her part. Yeah. You know, um, it might be, but, but that's an interesting. That is a really interesting case. As is just the, you know, what do you do with these Nazis fifty <laughs> years later? You well, know? I, from talking to you, it really just depends on whether those Nazis made cool movies. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, all right. Well, maybe we should take a break. Let's take a short break. <laughs> we'll be right back with uh, the best movies unquestionably ever made about <laughs> world <laughs> Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards, Dave. Out of pity and compassion, uh, that's how, allowed, that's how allowed me to do another movie podcast. Although, a, I think listeners like this. We this time we put out the the topic um, just a couple, a few days before, and we got a ton of really good responses and really uh, you know interesting choices. Many of which I haven't seen, but we'll try to get to some right. of those. Uh, a sort of classic one that I haven't seen is Sophie's Choice, and it's I it's, know it's, it was it's I have not I haven't seen it either, and it it popped to my mind immediately when you suggested the topic, but I haven't. It's, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I, not only have I not seen it, I, I I bet I'll go my whole life without seeing it. You know, I have absolutely no desire to see it. Either. It sounds all I know so is that, horrible. 
It sounds. <laughs> so for those who don't know, the, the, the dilemma, and it is a, it's used all the time in philosophy, and it's about a Nazi, your boys, who tells this woman she has two children, a son and a daughter. Uh, you know, you have to choose uh, one of them to be saved, and you have to make a choice. If you don't, if you refuse to choose one of them, I'm going to kill both of them. What do right. you do? And she chooses to save the son. The Nazi takes off her daughter and, and kills her. You know, she, she suffered a tremendous, tremendous amount of guilt. Uh, again, this is all hearsay. I don't, I've never read right. the book. <laughs> I never will read the book. I've never, uh, I've never seen. I've right. never seen the movie. Never will see the movie. It just it sounds like so. Yeah, there's a great tr- Simpsons Treehouse of Horror when the world is going to be destroyed and they can only save a few select really smart people and Lisa gets chosen and the guy goes to her. Okay, what I'm going to ask you next is going to be really difficult. You can pick one parent, mom. All right. Okay, Uh, so we didn't pick that one. So we didn't pick that one, but that's a great example of a moral dilemma. I mean, you know, that's a true dilemma. Obviously, you don't. Not for Sam Harris, I imagine. You know, and for your Peter Singer, your real just hardcore consequentialist, because there is a very obvious consequentialist answer, um, which you know, like if if you don't, if you refuse to make the choice, they're both going to die. So it's not like you're saving anybody by refusing to make a choice. In fact, you're actually leading right. to the death of some of, of one of your children if you refuse to make the choice. That said, there are still, and this is the key, th- this is the crucial feature of a moral dilemma. There are still maybe moral reasons and they're deontological. I can't imagine that they're consequentialist. Uh, I guess that uh, that just you don't choose to have one of your actively choose to have one of your children killed. Uh, right, right. I mean, but even even you know, this is often I think gets gets lost when you know we we so often pit deontology versus consequentialism. That it, what gets lost is that it's not like deontological uh, thinkers are insensitive to consequences, right? Right. Even, no. Even the deontologist has to say, "Well, this dude, you know." And there are strong it, deontological it reasons also to to choose one of the kids. You know. Right. Yeah. Do you think it's better or worse to flip a coin? I think it's better to flip a coin. What do you think? Yeah, What's your intuition? I think so. I think so. It, it, it's so significantly better to me that if I, you know, was the Nazi dedicated to just doing the most evil imaginable thing, I wouldn't let her flip a coin. You know? Oh, yeah. All right. Well, we're definitely depressing our listeners. So let's get to our lists. Uh, actually, let's let's transition from depressing to annoying them uh, with a little promo first. You uh, can support us a number of different ways. The easiest and most inexpensive way, in fact, it's free, is to if you go to our website and click on the Amazon link, figure out a way to remember this. Um, we'll get a, a small cut of whatever you purchase on Amazon. Or you can um, support us directly by contributing to the podcast. And we really thank all of you who have done that. And we are always trying to make improvements to the podcast. It may not sound like that, but we are. I mean, the truth is we can't even bear to listen to our early our, our earlier podcasts. Um, but the sound quality has hopefully noticeably improved. And, 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 you know, I would really like to get some more ratings on iTunes. I think we're in the 60s right now. If if we could bump that up to the 100 range, I'd be pretty psyched. So. <laughs> okay. Top five movies. Can I start? Because I want to get one of them out of the way. I want to do this one first because it's actually a bad movie. It's a it's a bad movie in the sense that it represents everything that was wrong with movies of this era. I already know it's what purely, this is. Can I guess? Guess. Indecent Proposal. No, 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 <laughs> no. 
No, but that that would that would have been my honorable mention. No, this is an executive decision with Kurt Russell. Dean Do you know this movie? No. Okay, I, so it's because it's so sta- it's such standard fare with like the crazy Arab terrorists and the hijacking of a plane. Um, the only reason that I put it on here is because when I actually saw it, uh, it was when I was. Uh, I remember I was reading moral philosophy and I was like, oh, this is really interesting because, you know, this is a, this is a case in which there really is this dilemma. And there is a cop-out, which I think is characteristic of a lot of American movies um, in the following way. So essentially there is – and this is pre-9-11. I think it was 96 or something. There is a terrorist that hijacks a plane and it's carrying a payload of explosives that, that he wants to detonate over U.S space to like do damage and the president has to try to decide whether or not uh, to shoot down the plane so killing the innocent passengers of the plane but uh, but saving the countless others that would die so you know here you have this classic trade-off between innocence a smaller number of innocent people or a larger uh, or, or a larger death toll so you have to act to kill the innocent so so classic sort of consequentialist versus deontological fare here um but you know, and let as, me guess, he's case, able to have it both ways. Well, all you need to know is that Steven Seagal is in the movie. <laughs> right. Steven Seagal would never actually let somebody make the tough decision, right? So Kurt Russell, see, there's just a lot of kicking ass and taking names, and but it's a, it's a really bad movie. But it contains this feature that I think is very common, which is bad guy wants to do something bad. Right. The decision is a dilemma until it's resolved by the good American hero and the, the hard decision never has to be made. And I think this, I don't know, it feels like a feature of American movies more than guess what? You didn't have to choose. My number five, a lot of the movies that have the greatest moral dilemmas you would also spoil the movie by... Um, Absolutely. And I'll talk about those at the end and then you can turn them off if you haven't seen them. And then there's just movies that kind of suck like you just did this but that right. I like. So Indecent Proposal. I mean, we should talk about that at some point because it's such a classic uh, moral dilemma movie. I just didn't <laughs> want to waste a spot on there. But uh, <laughs> You'd rather just waste the time of the podcast listeners. Right, right now. Okay. <laughs> so uh, my number five, and, and this one's flirting with spoilers, but I'm going to do my best. It was suggested by a lot of listeners. And it's Gone Baby Gone. Right. Movie. I haven't seen that, but it was suggested by a lot of listeners. This is Ben Affleck's movie when he started to redeem himself in the public eye. He just worn out his welcome. In, in right. as, as, as a celebrity, and then all of a sudden he directs this. Uh, it's sort of just a gritty, really well done mystery based on a Dennis Lehane novel that's set in Boston. That's just a strength of his capturing Boston. He he, he grew up there. He knows it. He, he does it really well. Park McCann. Uh, yeah, that's, you should uh, spot on. You should be in the next, spot on. Be in the next Ben Affleck movie. Uh, <laughs> so uh, Amy Ryan. Big, big crush on her from The Wire. She played Beatty, and she's so good in this. Whatever happened to Scott? Ah, uh, he stabbed a foreign exchange student in the chest. He got life and walked home. He's a faggot now. He's kind of a faggot in high school. Oh, man. You're terrible. <laughs> he was cute. Uh, he kind of wear them tight shorts. Oh, who's a faggot now? You're dating a faggot. <laughs> uh, she plays like a deadbeat mom. She's a four-year-old. I say deadbeat mom, but I mean she li- she lives with the kid. She feeds the kid, but she's just a really bad mom. And you know she just leaves the kid alone, uh, like a little three or four-year-old, so she can go get drunk. Plus, she's a criminal and she has some like drug dealing things on the side. This one. <laughs> But anyway, here's the dilemma. Uh, without spoiling too much, it's the, the dilemma c- 
takes place at the end of the movie and it splits up this longtime partnership of the two detectives. Are they married? I don't think they're married, but they might as well be married. Patrick Kenzie and Angie Gennaro, they're play, played by Casey Affleck and Michelle Moynihan, another actress I have kind of a crush on. Um, and, and again, it's like one of these classic deontology utilitarian dilemmas. Um, it turns out, and I won't say why, and I won't say who's involved, but it turns out the daughter would be you know, she's not dead. I mean, you don't, I don't think you ever would think that she, she, she died. And it turns out that, that the detectives have an opportunity to let her have what's clearly going to be a better life where she is right now. But they were hired to, to find out what happened to the daughter. And so, you know, that was their job, their job. And this is what they said they were going to do was to return the child. And that's what, and they have the opportunity to do that. So they're faced with do I let the child have a better life or do I do what I was paid to do, what I said I was going to do and bring the child back to, to her real, you know, her mom. Uh, right. This is, I mean, this is another version of, and I have a couple like this on my list of when duty conflicts with obviously utilitarian or consequentialist. Right. Exactly. Outcome, There's right? a bunch of these, the duty of just doing your job. First of all, the duty of, keeping your word when that conflicts with a, a pretty obvious utilitarian outcome that you can also bring about. And, and what's really interesting about the movie and the book, he, the detectives are on different sides of this and right. they end up splitting up their longtime relationship. And, and they don't, I don't know if they ever get back together. It's a series of mysteries that are great, by the way, if, if you haven't read them by Dennis Lehane, who's also a writer for the wire. I don't know. I, I, I what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I mean, there's this class of movies where you see you see this this happen where it's like yeah duty in this case is defined it's a special duty because that's what we do right and right, and you really get the job. sense from the right like if we don't have this we have nothing like that's what we do right and sometimes that leads to really ugly things like a defense attorney having to to defend right. you know somebody who's clearly a bad person if not obviously guilty um because the process depends on them acting right yeah. so writ large the process depends on you doing something that locally seems so bad right yeah. and and you know unlike executive decision you really see i'm not i won't say what they choose and i won't say what happens but you see the they're forced to make the choice they make it or you know one of them makes it and you see the consequences of making the choice they don't back away from that and you're just left wondering you know this is like i think right. it's a great moral dilemma because there are great reasons for both sides my my sense was you leave you just leave it alone um at that point i was going to ask you we should say what we would do in these clubs. yeah you know in a very similar vein my number four is 310 to yuma the good i'm the glad you yeah, this is an honorable mention yeah, yeah yeah so this is again in a very similar vein like uh, the the main character whose name i forget actually i should have the wikipedia we'll put links to imdb and wikipedia if you in order to make money because he's he's deep in debt and can't take care of his son is he a widower i believe i think he's a widower who has a son and no, I don't, I don't think he's a widower. I think he's married, right? No. He has, actually has – yeah. But but point is he owes money to these mean bad guys and they burn down his ranch. He basically won't be able to to take care of his family. Um, and he gets this opportunity to get paid to transport an outlaw. Um, and the whole story of of this 310 to Yuma, which is – I'm talking about the remake. I, yeah. I haven't actually seen the original um, with Russell Crowe. Um, and Christian Bale. That, you know, 
And Christian Bale, yeah. The the outlaw that they have to transport and get on this train, that's what the title refers to, um, in order to, to be taken and tried. And the shit that he has to go through, it becomes so obvious at some point that it's not worth it. It's totally not worth and it. And he's offered more money by the by, uh, by the Russell criminal Crow, to let him go. To let him go. Right. And so, you know, right. in terms of his obligations to his family, he can fulfill those even better by not doing the job. Exactly. So if you, you start out thinking he's doing it just for the money and you end up realizing that it's not just for the money because, as Tamler just said, he could get money by turning him in. I mean, by not turning him in, um, that it is somehow to reclaim this honor that he's lost. Because in this case, it isn't even that it's his duty. He's not a cop. Right. Right. He said he would do it and he has suffered so much sort of indignity yeah. in his life in recent years that he wants to do this by any means necessary to reclaim his dignity and do the right thing, especially I think for his son. And I won't spoil it, but it doesn't end well. Uh, it doesn't <laughs> end well, although there's a really nice aspect to the ending, which I think I yeah. can say without spoiling too much, which is that the Russell Crowe character, who's the outlaw character, ends up really respecting his exactly. his commitment to his duty and especially and, and also the commitment to the to the son and makes it it makes a really interesting choice himself at the end of the movie. Exactly. Uh, where, it, where that's the sort of turning point where he realized, no, this guy was acting out of honor much in the way that he still kind of clings to. Yeah. Um, and, it, it, it's a really underrated movie. I like that movie a lot. It is, and it's a good western. I think it's a, yeah. it's a, a of the modern sort of westerns. It's no, it's not unforgiven, but it is you know I'd say top five in the last decade of westerns. It's got great sound. I remember there's a shootout great, in the beginning. Great sort of shootout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like everything you like about spaghetti westerns plus a little bit more plot. Yeah, God, I love those. <laughs> I wanted to put uh, like one of like fistful of dollars. I just couldn't, just oh, couldn't. Yeah, I just couldn't find the the like a dilemma in there in any right. of those. Man, do I love <laughs> right. All right, that's a good um, pick. Okay. Glad you picked it. I, I, so so you always end up – you bitch about these things. You end up having really good picks pretty much throughout. Well, it's harder for me. Not, I actually – I think upon listening to our podcast, some director out there could make the perfect Tamler movie. It would be about Boston. It would involve honor <laughs> and somehow involve revenge and then a particular set of actors. That's, um, that's absolutely right. If you're out there, it's going to make us both a lot of money. <laughs> We'll bootleg it immediately. All right. My number four, this is my Jesse Prince pick, and it's a real hardcore Jesse Prince. Not what you sometimes call a Jesse Prince movie, like Casablanca or something. You haven't seen it. I don't call. I don't call. First of all, I have seen Casablanca. An honorable mention, by the way. Uh, Second of all, uh, just because I don't know the 1935 silent films from the Czech Republic that involve, you know, foot fetishes. Um, (laughs) Well, this is a 1939 film, so you're close. Uh, Not from the Czech Republic, but from France by Marcel Pagnol. Um, and it's called La Femme du Boulanger or The Baker's Wife. Marcel Pagnol, the only reason I really know him is because I spent I, I spent a year and a half in France and lived with a French family for a while. And um, they introduced me to his early trilogy of plays and movies, the Marius Fanny trilogy, uh, which <laughs> – are also great. Also star this actor, this one of the greatest comic actors of all time, Ray Mou. They're they're really funny. They all take place in the south of France. They all with these funny, you know, southern French accents. They all have so much heart. These movies and uh, and they all have like, a moral dilemma at their core. And in, and in La Femme du Boulanger, it's about a baker in a small town. So this baker is a f- absolutely fantastic. Boulanger, right? He makes the most delicious bread, the most delicious croissants. Um, the, the, the townspeople love him for that. But he's also kind of old and fat. He's a consummate schlub, you know. He sweats a lot and he probably smells. 
And yet he has this inc- you can taste it in his croissant. incredibly hot wife. I mean, she's beautiful and, and also really sexy, uh, played by Jeanette Leclerc. She is much younger. She has an affair with a shepherd. And runs off with the shepherd. You can't, you know, you really can't trust a shepherd. I, I just got to put it out there. I, anytime a shepherd comes to my house, I'm on extra high alert right now. <laughs> so, but but soon he he just gets depressed. You know, he loves her. I mean, it's very sweet. He, he really he really loves her, and not just because she's beautiful. And he stops baking. And once he stops baking, the the town gets really really worried, and they get you know they they, they come together. And they try to find the woman, and she agrees to come back. But her condition for coming back, and this is the dilemma, is that the boulanger has to forgive her 100%, take her back without any resentment, any bitterness, any kind of, you know, essentially he has to swallow every ounce of pride that he has as a, <laughs> as, a, as a man and as a husband. You can't ever throw it in her face again. Like she just won't come right. back if, if that's, if that's what it is. And, and he has to, like when you walk by, when you walk by a field of sheep or whatever, he can't be like, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Son, I bet I know what your mom's favorite nursery rhyme is. By the way, if you ever see little Bo Peep hanging around here, I want you to come straight to the boulangerie and get me and, and bring my gun. That's <laughs> <laughs> Check your phone for that shepherd's number. <laughs> and you know this is 1939, and you know it's not it's not an enlightened period. It's it's hard in full right. view of the whole town to to right. accept this. But that's his dilemma, and it's a moral dilemma in 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 the sense that. You know, he kind of knows that he's too old for her, and he kind of knows that you know this is so. At the same time, you know, he he he's not somebody that would ever do this. He's not someone who would ever betray his wife, and and you know, he feels very strongly that it's a more unethical, morally wrong thing to do, and yet he has to sort of act as if it's not. So that's the. That's the dilemma, and I don't know. Maybe it's not the greatest moral dilemma of all time, but it's such a great movie, and I, I hope I, well, you know, people clearly, will have seen. Clearly, it touched a nerve. We'll see <laughs> myself. <laughs> You're such an asshole. Uh, <laughs> I, I hope people will see movies by. No, it sounds like a great film. I mean, actually. he the ones that people have seen, not you, but you know, someone reasonably normal people in that are based on his novels are Jean de Florette and Man on of the Spring that uh, with eighties movies. Oh, totally. Which, uh, <laughs> Gerard Depardieu <laughs> and uh, oh, Daniel or or Toy, but these are earl, or, or old early movies, and if you can get your hands on them, I strongly recommend them. Strongly. All right, that's my number four. <laughs> my number three is Minority Report. Ah. And yeah, so this isn't your class, your traditional kind of moral dilemma, but I but I did want to bring it up. So Minority Report, Tom Cruise, uh, science fiction film. Actually, it's a great film for the uneducated masses like me. It's the last know, half hour well, is terrible. I mean, Tom, it's Tom Cruise also, so it's not. But it's not his fault. Um, like it's Spielberg's. It's, uh, yeah, the the one thing that that movie is probably best known for is just the computer interface that was <laughs> that was pretty cool. And it's not purely because of the technology; it's because of some some. Uh, people who have a psychic power but the whole the whole point of the story is that you can tell when a crime will be committed before it gets committed uh so pre-crime and so the cops are authorized to go and prevent these pre-crimes from stopping uh from happening by arresting the person who has been seen by one of these psychics sitting in a tub of like jelly naked people suspended in weird liquid um who are psychic and have this ability to tell when somebody's going to be murdered 
And so they run and they arrest the person before they've done anything wrong. You know, the dilemma that it poses, obviously. And, you know, I think that the point is to get your sense of injustice at condemning somebody who has who has yet to do something wrong. The reason that I chose it is because it's a dilemma that we're going to have more and more um, as our technology and our ability to predict behavior gets better and better. So I'll just give you a modern analog to this. Uh, Walter Sinner Armstrong, who's a philosopher here at Duke and who I think we'll have on the show sometime within the next few months, is involved in research on psychopaths. Yeah. One of the questions that you have for for well for any violent criminal is when when they are eligible for parole. So you know you did you were sentenced to twenty to life, twenty five to life, but you can come up for parole after having committed a violent crime. And it's a tough decision, and usually it's turned down. But what you want to say is, if somebody seems as as if they really are, uh, if if they really aren't going to ever commit that crime again, somehow the judge makes this judgment that they're eligible for for parole. Psychopaths have high recidivism rates. That is, they are very likely to commit the crime again. And we know we can measure this. We can give people a, a what's called the psychopathy checklist and and measure them. And the higher the score the more likely they are to commit a crime if they're let go. Well, they're they're able now to do these whole brain scans and statistically with a really high degree of certainty predict which of these psychopaths are most likely to commit crime again. And what Walter argues is that we should use these these estimates as a way to determine whether or not somebody should be released from prison. Now, mind you, these are all people who have been found guilty. You know, they've been through the process. It's not nobody's determining culpability. Um, they've, they've been found culpable whether they are or right. not. But um, but there's no thing in principle different about if you can identify a psychopath even exactly. before they've committed the crime. Right. And if you had some high degree of certainty that they were going to commit a crime in the future, you could isolate them. Right. right? And as a true – as a good consequentialist, you might actually want to do this, which Walter is. And the other thing to keep in mind is that the judgments of clinicians and judges who, who are making these decisions is nowhere near the accuracy of the whole brain scan. And, and there's no particular area of the brain that's lighting up. It's just – really bottom up like let's just get as much data on brain activity as we can and show and you can show that it predicts recidivism they have this prospectively they've actually done it and shown that in the future that this this actually works um i think this violates a lot of people's moral intuition especially in the culpability case because deep down we believe that up until the moment you decide you, yeah. you could change your mind and who are we to say um, it's it's almost like rejecting free will to say. Well, that, to, yeah, to I think this is a great retributivist deontological approach to the philosophy of punishment, which really is 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 entirely based on punishing somebody for an action that they have performed and that they have performed of right. their own free will or that they're you know, they've performed with a high degree of res moral responsibility. And this is one of the things that retributivists use against consequentialists, almost reductio ad absurdum of the consequences consequentialist position is that if you are a utilitarian or consequentialist, you could punish somebody before they've even committed a crime if you th if right. there's like a 80 percent chance that that they will commit a crime. Right. And, and in you know, in, in defense of the consequentialist here, punishment means something a little different. It means simply, you know, the whole goal of punishment is to to prevent bad, you know, prevent worse overall consequences. And so you could actually have a very humane detainment of somebody um, just so that they won't commit a crime. Although you, you could imagine, imagine that that's not really affordable also. 
you could. Right? You know, it's you know the math. The math would have to work. Saul Smolansky has um, a paper on this that consequentialists. The practic. It's called like a practical reductio, and mm-hmm. he just says that you know the what you're committed to doing is just not practically possible. Um, you know, give very like what he calls it punishment for uh, even criminals who have committed <laughs> punishment. And, uh, and so he says that this is this is a real problem because you you know you're committed to doing something that it would not be affordable. I don't I don't buy it. Right. I think, but I, but right. I don't. I, yeah, I, I don't think they can get out of it that easily by saying they could have a really cushy isolation because well, we can't no, afford I mean, but to you punish wanna, the criminals who have but i think that that we're punishing like you know petty weed dealers and stuff i you know i think that the the, the better strategy would be to not incarcerate nonviolent criminals who are who are doing things like selling selling dime bags of marijuana the problem is if you hang your hat on on the the affordability or the the ease with which you can do this, then as soon as it becomes affordable, then you've got you got to be like, oh, okay, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, it's better to it's better to oppose it on principled grounds if you really want to oppose it. I agree, um, but but you know you could imagine that just given enough data about an individual, right, you start getting from basic demographic data, uh, genetic data, environmental data, brain scans, all of this. The more data you have, the better it is, the easier it is to predict something, and it's not unreasonable. I'm mean, even from from the clinical sort of the psychopathy checklist, you can predict recidivism to a high degree. We're talking like in the 80s percent percent wise. So you can imagine that the more the more information we acquire, the easier it will be to predict a future uh, predict a future crime. And isn't as even as a deontologist, isn't it your duty to somehow protect? people from the most dangerous i don't know i i would think if any deontologist worth the name or certainly retributivist right. can't punish somebody who hasn't committed a crime yet and even what well, maybe, we do right now like keeping some, some psychopaths because they just don't score well on that test well beyond what say a non-psychopath would be getting for the same exact crime they are on principled grounds opposed to that too because you know the they they are but let's 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 take a step back and not say let's punish them let's say we let's say that we have as we do now we have a map of uh, sex offenders right now sex offenders have been found guilty they've done their time right now, you as a concerned parent don't want to move in next to a sex offender, say, of a certain variety. Um, you use these in for – Only Woody Allen. You use <laughs> – <laughs> you 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 would use this information to say, well, okay, like this is where I'm going to live. I'm going to live in a in a in an environment in which my daughter wouldn't be at high risk of being exposed to sex offender. What if it was something like that? What you know? What if you you started dotting people like coding them for colors for people who are at high risk for committing a crime in the future versus not? If you started what? Like just do, doing a map where you could code neighborhood houses uh, on the basis of a color and these houses tend to contain people who are at high risk for committing a crime in the future. Well, uh, look, if I had a real problem with sex offenders, I wouldn't let you anywhere near my family. And, <laughs> it's uh, not. All right. My number three is, is In Bruges, the Martin McDonough. I love this movie. I love it. It is hilarious. Uh, it's really moving. Um, it's, it's just so funny. It's got a lot of weird, great scenes. <laughs> great depiction of like, a night of drug use involving <laughs> prostitutes, yeah. racist midgets uh, who are addicted <laughs> I love to that racist, uh, horse that racist little person. Bye. 
It's gonna be a war, man. There's gonna be a war between the blacks and between the whites. I don't know whose side I'm fighting on. I'm fighting with the blacks. Whites are gonna get their heads kicked in. You don't decide this shit, man. Well, who are the half-cats gonna fight with? With the blacks, man. That's obvious. But what about the Pakistanis? The blacks. <sighs> what about... Think about it. What about the Vietnamese? The blacks! Well, I'm definitely fighting with the blacks if they got the Vietnamese. So hang on. Would all of the white midgets in the world be fighting against all the black midgets in the world? Yeah. <sighs> That'd make a good film. You don't know how much shit I've had to take off of black midgets, man. That's undeniably true. And, uh, and it has a great moral dilemma. So it's, it's a story of two hitmen, Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. Their boss tells them that they have to go to Bruges, but doesn't tell them why. And they're uh, just supposed to wait for instructions. And one of them's really into just the history of Bruges and wants to do a lot of that. This is Brendan Gleeson. And Colin Farrell, he, I mean, he, he's very childlike in the whole movie. He's like I am if, when I travel with Jen's parents. You know, they want to go see every museum and go to every church. And, and I just want to go to a bar and drink. And, and you find out, I don't know, a little ways into the movie um, that recently Colin Farrell he has had one hit in his whole career he was supposed to kill this dirty priest and he did but in the process by mistake shot and killed the little kid and he's devastated about it and yeah actually really touching performance he's great uh, by Colin Farrell he really is both of them all the performances are great Ray Fiennes is hilarious playing the boss Uh, and Brendan Gleeson is, I mean, yeah, no, every, Colin Farrell's a good actor. Speaking of minority report, he's really good. You know, he's an amazing actor, but this one, in this one, he just has that just sort of a tenderness to his character that, that is not that common for at least the blockbuster movies that he's in. So anyway, Ray Fiennes finally calls Brendan Gleeson, the older hitman, and tells him that the reason he's there is to kill Colin Farrell. Who's his partner? And he said, it's, it's, it's funny. He, he, the reason he sent them to Bruges is because Ray Fiennes had gone there when he was a little kid and wanted to give him at least a nice experience. He wanted to, he, he wanted to give him a really nice experience before he was killed. Uh, and the reason he wants Brendan Gleeson to kill him is simply because he killed the kid. And you can't kill a kid and get away with it. That's uh, right. Ray Fiennes' code. There's, there's rules to this shit. There's rules, exactly. But Gleeson notices that Colin Farrell, he notices the tenderness, as you say, and this kind of childlike innocence that he has. And he thinks that he has a chance to turn his life around. And so he's also very tempted to let him go. And this is the dilemma, right? On the one hand, he owes his boss. And you find out why he owes his boss. His boss really came through for him. And so he had had this black wife who was killed and the the, the, the boss really make sure that the people who did it didn't get away with it. And he's been working with him his whole life and, 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 and knows that he owes him everything. But at the same time, he really thinks it's the right thing to do to let Colin Farrell go and not to kill his own, his partner. Right. And so this is not exactly a consequentialist, which is good because we've had a lot of these versus deontology or duty or 
some sort of non-consequentialist. Right. right. I think in this case, it's two duties that are st- super strong. And the fact that he is – that you know that he's bound to his boss because his boss came through from before means he has a special relationship with both of these people. Yeah. And it's also a – it's, it's an honor question yeah. too. I mean this is one of the reasons yeah. I love this movie is right. you know, what rather than saying thing? like yeah. what's the moral reasons to do this? What's the moral reasons to do that? I think Brendan Gleeson is also asking himself – uh, in a way, what a virtue ethicist would want. What would an honorable person do here? You know, which, by the way, I think every. You know, I think that's how people think. Yeah, that is just. I agree. People don't say like, "What what rule am I violating?" Like they don't unless or they're whatever. They're different. Yeah. You, the way philosophers talk, you would think that we just break down reasons. Okay, I have the moral reasons, the uh, A through F versus yeah. the moral reasons. But you no, know, I think it's like what's a what's an honorable person supposed to do in this kind of situation. Um, um, and you know, like, what's a virtuous person supposed to do? And and that's you know, a, this is such very a, interesting. I love that fucking movie. It's so it's, awesome. Yeah, it's a great movie, and it's an interesting point that you raise here, which is when when we say what is the right thing to do here, we probably mean something very different as human beings, something very different than what the right thing, what's the right thing to do, is meant by philosophers. And even though we might use the same language, right. we say like, oh, see, he's pondering the moral dilemma. He's asking what's the right course of action. You're not – I don't think people really are. They're saying like – you know, there's a reason that, that there are bracelets to say what would Jesus do, right? Like we're just saying like what what is a good person to do in this fucked up situation? Yeah. You know? Exactly. Um, there's no rules that can get you out of it. There's no math. And what would it say about me if, you know, I did this? And what would it right. say about me if I did that? Right. And what would this person do if it were me? What would this person do for me? Like right. would this – you know, it, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a it, it's 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 got a lot of heart. This movie and it's great racist little person. Great, great. <laughs> if if you like movies with racist little people who are still somehow very sympathetic, <laughs> like you know all the characters are even Ray Ray Fiennes is a very sympathetic character in a lot of ways. Right, you want you want it to be just a. a an easy answer, like no, the boss is the bad guy, right? Right, but it's not. They don't let you get out of yeah, it. Yeah, no, right? this is Never this is a true tragic situation, but that's also imbued with so much comedy. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, so we'll right. be right back. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with our top two. It's going to be my superhero chapter. <laughs> okay, <laughs> surprise. Back to very bad wizards. Counting down our our top five movies, the best movies of all time that feature at their core moral dilemmas. 
A couple of things that we forgot to mention for future episodes. One of the things I want to talk about with you is this breast cancer study where it just shows that mammograms are essentially do more harm than good or at best are worthless. And I want to talk to you about the psychology behind what makes it so hard to to really accept that. Yeah, no, I was going to say it's, a, it's really fascinating. I mean, it's, similar points have been made about mammograms before and about other screening procedures like prostate right. exams that, that end up – because it's so fucking hard to say like, no, I don't want to see if I have cancer. Right. <laughs> you know? And like MRIs to detect for brain injuries and stuff like that. Our psychology is not designed to accept that, but also the incentive structure of doctors is terribly designed to uh, because they A, get money for ordering these procedures. B, they will never get sued if, uh, you know, 20 years later, you know, if it's misdiagnosed 20 or it leads to, you know, some kind of cancer from the MRI 20 years later, they'll never get sued for that, but they will get sued if they're less aggressive than they should have been. Yeah. I I mean, and I think that it's that there is, uh, you know, purely good intentions on the part of doctors can with bad incentive structures can lead to gross errors. And this is a point Dan Dan Ariely has made a few times about uh, about these kinds of procedures. Like all you always have to see where is there a conflict of interest and um, dentists are this is it's really bad in the case of dentists. He he, I just saw him give a talk. He was talking about uh, the number one predictor of getting dental work. What, uh, so guess what the number one predictor of, of getting dental work is? It's switching uh, dentists. The, the new dentist will always be like, I can't believe that this other guy fucked up your teeth this bad. Right? That's it's what like, ev- that's happened to me at every single dentist. Every single and time, so I right? keep switching dentists because I don't want to get the dental work. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, and they all tell me, oh, my God. God, like, like this is who just, have you let in here? <laughs> right. We should so, also we got to do our free will episode. Da- Sam Harris just wrote a response uh, in between these segments that we're uh, recording to Dan Dennett, and we should just read some of that. It's it really is just a it's a, it's a very funny. It's like a battle of the snarky blog posts. I, I, the condescension like- <laughs> on both sides at this stage is just breathtaking. I, I really, I just, I want to put it to a beat and just call it a battle rap, you know? Like, yeah. It's a- <laughs> okay. So let's go to our number twos. So my number two, the Watchmen movie. It's in the movie. It's a, it's, it's a classic case of, of utilitarianism versus deontology. But the one thing that I do like about the movie and really the graphic novel does it much better. And I, and I have something to say about the way that it's explained in the graphic novel. Um, this is an alternate world where there are costumed heroes that none of them have superpowers really, except for one. Um, they are vigilantes who take, who, you know, who fight crime in this world in the 1980s. Richard Nixon has continued to be president for the the entirety of the decade of the 70s, and we are in a constant Cold War. The world is at the brink of nuclear annihilation, right? So its clock theme in the book is it's a countdown clock to when basically Russia and the U.S. are going to nuke each other to hell and destroy the whole world. One of the guys in – and I should say spoiler alert. I mean – so, sorry if you if you haven't watched if you haven't read the book read the book but I'm spoiling the shit out of it. One of the guys who was a costume vigilante who is actually like a you know supposed to be a genius level guy who's super physically fit. He takes it on himself to prevent nuclear the nuclear destruction of the entire world by uh, creating a common enemy. And it, this is where it, the book and the movie are two different ones. But in the movie, he. 
initiates uh, basically a nuclear attack on New York City that is – he frames one of the other guy, the one and only guy who has superpowers in the world. He has – he's the only one with like basically – he's unstoppable. So he he frames Dr. Manhattan, the, the blue guy, for this nuclear attack. Kills millions of people in New York City so that the entire world will have a common enemy. And because of that, then the destruction of the entire world is prevented. Now, it's what's interesting about this book is I think it captures at least the Josh Green argument perfectly. This guy, there is no doubt that this guy is the smartest guy in the world. And he realizes that he, something really drastic has to be done. And uh, he's totally willing to be the one to to kill the millions of people in order to save the billions of people and the movie and the book don't unlike these traditional sort of american cinema where you pit these two against each other it's not so clear that he's wrong because on the opposite side of the argument you have um this guy named rorschach now rorschach is a moral absolutist the character was designed it was he he was copied after a couple of uh, former comic book characters who are almost like Anne rand style uh, absolutists but um uh, he 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 is completely opposed to the killing of any innocent people, um, but to the point of being completely insane himself. So you pit those two against each other, and even though it's clear that that uh, Adrian Vate is the villain, Ozymandias, the guy who who orders the attack on New York City, is supposed to be the villain. It's you when you really think about it, you hate the guy, but like he probably did the right thing. How certain is it that the world? It's will made be to be. It's made to be. As certain as you can get in human politics. But there's one part of the book that I think is brilliant, which is when they finally confront the villain and they uh, are trying to stop it from happening. He points out that villain or the guy that's or sorry, the the putative villain, the Adrian Vate, Ozymandias, the guy who ordered the destruction of New York City has in his, you know, lair in his in his uh, headquarters. He has this wall full of screens like these is like, you know, cathode ray 80s screens, but it's it takes the entire, you know, huge wall. And on every single screen, he's looking at the destruction that he's caused. And he says, you may, you may think I'm callous, but in order to do this, in order to make the sacrifice, I have made myself feel the pain and suffering of every single person that I've taken the life of. And the idea is, you know, his, his IQ allows him to process that much more information than most people. And as uh, even though he has arrived at this view that, that the ends here justify the means because the ends would otherwise be so tragic, he's not letting himself do it callously. He's actually – he's bearing the suffering of every single person. And, you know, uh, that's really interesting. I like that yeah. a lot. And you know – uh, there's a couple things it reminds me of. One, the people who who have no objection to eating meat, but they think that they need to watch the animal that they're going to <laughs> right. eat die. That that's right. like a point of of honor with them. It's a point of I'm not going to let myself. I'm not going to let this just come in a package. You know, like I think it's by magic. I have to actually be there and you know have some sort of personal connection with the animal so that I'm the animal. I think a lot of old cultures have this view of uh, of hunting and you know the respect for animals. I think it sounds to the modern ear just bizarre and maybe especially immoral, but I think. 
think it actually there's something really virtuous about that. Yeah, and I think there's something to it in the sense that uh, it's a similar. I, I think that we fight against the easy technological way of killing people now, right? Like that's right. What, one of the problems with drones is that you don't have to see if you're going to do something. Like if, if you claim that suffering bothers you or death or destruction bothers you, then what you're doing in that case is not necessarily rational. What you're doing is giving yourself all of the relevant information upon which to make your judgment. So if, if you can't accept the pain that you're causing an animal or another human being in war, you wouldn't know until you opened yourself up to that information. And so you know, you're not making a moral judgment with, with the right kind of data. Uh, the right information. No. That's right. right and, that's, and, and you know that you know, from that book that we've talked about a little bit that you recommended that's awesome on killing, that when people actually have to watch, you know, they actually have to shoot someone in a fairly up close and personal way, they don't want to do it. That's the hardest, right. And so there is, you know, I, I think that a lot of people who say you should watch the animal being killed might be people who are opposed to meat eating, but it doesn't have to be that argument. It just has, to, I think it would just have to be like, just know what you're doing, dude, you know, right. It, it could be that in there are some cases, I mean, imagine a surgeon who has, you know, who has to save lives uh, before anesthesia. You don't like, there's reasons for him to just try his best to ignore this. You know, if there were a way to like take a little pill, that would make him not have empathy right before surgery. It might actually help. But, I, but I think that the point that, um, that it's just a little too easy to make tough moral decisions in the absence of the personal information when, as you often point out, the whole point of morality is, is you know, how to treat people and how are you going to just treat them as faceless statistics and say that you're making the right decision. But you know what, Paul Bloom, I can imagine him responding to this is he's going to say, if you're choosing not to say kill this person because you're feeling too empathetic – you're missing the information of all the people that would right. die because you're right. making that choice. Right. And this is why I love this this particular panel in, in the Watchmen comic because, you know, the critique of empathy is so often that, that you're insensitive to large numbers, right? You're, you're right. saving the one person and you're not noticing the suffering of, of millions that, that, might, that might occur. But his point is like, I am saving millions and I'm sensitive to the suffering of, of millions. Um, and so screw you, Paul Bloom. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's a good answer to Paul Bloom. Is that <laughs> it's also uh, the microcosm of this exact dilemma is the Nazi who, you know, the people are hiding out and then the little right. baby starts the to cry and then smothering yeah. the little baby because oh. they're all going to die, including right. the baby. I mean, all those people in New York, right, are going to die regardless. Anyway. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. So they're, they're done. Forget. These it's almost people. it's almost weird to be opposed to it. But all right. So my number two, it probably would have been, you know, one of my favorite movies of the last 
10 years old boy, but mm-hmm. it to give the dilemma of that would spoil it. But we should talk about the dilemma of that for people who have seen it at some point. So my number two is a substitute for that. How kind of you to your listening audience. But but it's a movie that my number two is also written and directed by Park Chan-wook, probably the most talented filmmaker alive right now. I may have, I mean, he's, he's certainly visually the most talented. You've seen Old Boy, right? You know, you're going to kill me. I started watching it, and for some reason I never finished it. So I'm glad that you're not spoiling it. It's so yeah, good. Yeah, no, it's... No. I, I watched about halfway through it. I mean, it's, it is great. Uh, it's visually so stunning, and if you're like me, if you're a Park Chan-wook junkie, you'll, you'll listen to the director's commentary. Now, of course, he does this in Korean afterwards. So you learn, but you like learn every this. shot is – well, they have right, has, uh, <laughs> subtitles. But every shot is planned like it's a painting. It's I'm, amazing. I believe it. I mean, I think that one of the reasons I didn't get around to finishing is because it's actually really distressing. And and I realized it was going to take – at that point, it was going to take some d- emotional energy to get to get through it. Oh, God. Just, uh, but it's also but, exhilarating. Now, yeah. the, the movie that's my number two is called Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, which is the first movie in his Vengeance trilogy. Um, and honestly, I think we should do like a whole episode on this movie. Maybe we can get Yoel back. It, it might even be better than Old Boy. It, it's a totally brilliant. It's a brilliant, beautiful, and really tragic story. I mean, I said In Bruges was tragic, but In Bruges is like right. an episode of Happy Days. It's a story about a deaf mute fact- factory worker who's been laid off by this sort of heartless capitalist uh, boss. Um, and because he's laid off, he can't afford to get a kidney for his sister who's going to die unless she has a kidney. So he gets laid off and he tries to sell one of his own kidneys to the black market. After seeing this movie, I would strongly suggest not trying to sell your own kidney to the black market. <laughs> that does not work out well. So I don't know if you were thinking of doing that or if any of our listeners were. But yeah, there um, goes my spring break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't do it. Find, get get your money some other way. So anyway, now he's completely out of options. He only has one kidney left, and so he has this anarchist girlfriend, and she suggests that they kidnap his boss's daughter to get the money, you know, with the ransom, save his sister, and it would just be sort of justice, you know, to do that mm-hmm. because the boss had had laid him off in the first place. But that's not the interesting <laughs> dilemma. Would you say totally deserved it then? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I'm not saying that's right. I'm saying that's the least interesting moral dilemma. It does yeah. have more. It's a dilemma because well, it has moral like reasons Heinz, going for it's like it. A, it's like the Heinz dilemma, right? I mean, it's like. Yeah. But here's the second dilemma I'm interested in, and shockingly, it will be it, it concerns revenge. So here's what happens: they end up kidnapping the wrong daughter by mistake. Okay, like uh, there's like a little switch in the daughters. <laughs> I'm not even saying no, that. No, no, no. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm cutting that. So it's also this rich boss, uh, CEO of some company, but he's not heartless. In fact, he's raising this daughter all by himself. He's a widower. His wife died. Uh, and, and they end up taking the wrong daughter. They realize it. Kidnappers, they're both good people, really good heart. They treat the daughter while they're kidnapping him really, really well. And she loves them. She's having a great time with them. She loves her dad, too, but her dad is really busy. He's a CEO of this company, you know, and he doesn't have a mom. And so it's like this anarchist girlfriend is sort of serving as a mother figure to her. And it's almost like I a fun an vacation for girlfriend. her. Having an you anarchist, want an anarchist girlfriend sounds awesome. I don't even know what an anarchist does nowadays, but... <laughs> So if there are any anarchist girls out there, you know, Dave, he's a good guy. He's a good looking guy. So if you're an anarchist 
Email uh, very well. No, just email him. I just, guess directly. Just email me directly. Tweet, yeah. Yeah. We can we can use the anarchist cookbook. CC here. very bad wizards at <laughs> gmail dot com. Um, blind BCC. Well, I guess it wouldn't be BCC because you you have access to that account too, right? So so everything's going well, and you know this guy has plenty of money to to do this. He just wants his daughter back. But then in one of the most chilling scenes of all time, uh, through an accident that's just bizarre and nobody's fault she ends up drowning while in their care the little girl okay how old is the little girl she's probably about seven seven or eight Uh, no maybe even less maybe she's like six or five god so afterwards the father is so distraught by this you know destroyed by by this you can imagine right i mean we can both imagine so and he has this dream messed up dream where the daughter appears and starts hugging him and this is after she's dead and then all of a sudden like water starts pouring out from her and she says to him dad dad oh my god. why didn't why didn't you get me swimming lessons oh my god it's horrible i i, I swear to god I, I'm, not, I'm not joking uh, eliza was i think three or four at this time i was living in morris still i immediately signed up for swimming but the next day after this I think this is the uh, swimming instructor propaganda. I, this is just the know, lobby. <laughs> yeah, they've, they've hired a talented director. You know, like uh. now he's understandably devoted himself to getting revenge uh, and getting revenge on the guy who, as far as he knows, at, at the very least, through terrible leg- negligence, either killed his daughter or or um, or led to the death of his daughter. It's 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 a very cool sort of story. The way he tracks him down and finds him, and at the end. He captures the guy, and he understands everything, right? He understands, A, how circumstances drove him to do what he was doing. He understands, B, that this is not a bad man at heart, the, right. the, the, the deaf mute. He says to him, I know you're not a bad man. I know you're a good guy. Uh, but C, look, his deliberate action, the kidnapping, led to his daughter's death. So the dilemma is, do you take revenge knowing the circumstances, knowing that this was an accident, knowing that this is actually a good guy? Do you take do you take revenge? Now, what he says, is really interesting. This is why I think we should do like. But he says to him, I know you're a good guy. And so I know you you understand, you know, why I'm I I think I have to take revenge here. I won't say whether he does or doesn't. But right. it's it's really interesting. It's like you, you don't know – again, like like a lot of his movies, you get at least – even if you strongly side with one person or the other, you get where they're coming you from. You get the dilemma, right? It's yeah. not just – so and, – And this and, isn't consequentialist. Again, this is not a consequentialist right, not, yeah, deontology. Yeah. This is either an honor thing. Uh, reve- like what or, duty or do you have to your daughter? What right. duty do you have to this guy? I feel the need to, to just say this because if anybody ever thinks that that we or maybe you especially all we like is just revenge porn, that's not. It's one thing to watch to watch a movie like a Tarantino movie where where you know right. Hitler gets killed three times and like that's satisfying. But the point of this movie, as you're as you're making it, is that if you have any intuitions about revenge, 
Like they are tested. They are conf- and they're so conflicted at this right. point. I mean, I you know, look, just because you're with the deaf mute and you really understand how this whole thing went down. I don't know. You're right that we always get shit. Both of us, by the way, don't try to snitch out of uh, making me the fall the guy. For this. I'm not making you the fall guy. It's just that you're you're the one who happens to be talking about like these. Right. These, I, I, it's true. And I and I uh, I have to. I, I you know I'm not. It, it wasn't clear to me at all. In fact, I wasn't rooting for revenge to happen. Favor, especially since you're the one all in favor of restorative justice. You know, you tried. It. Yeah, but see, I think part of restorative justice is you know. Revenge revenge and um that's where i probably differ with a lot of restorative justice people is who see it as an alternative to revenge but i but but the it's the personal connection and this is the thing like he was if he was going to take revenge he was going to do it himself and he was going to look the guy in the eye so it's a little similar to the watchman case where and this is the the overlap between revenge and restorative justice is that it's personal right? right it's not 12 years later uh, some jury that of strangers decides that this guy should die. Um, it's I'm doing it. If this is going to happen, it's my, it's only me that has the responsibility to do it. You know. Um, right. But do you remember uh, Kill Bill? Do you remember in Kill Bill when Uma Thurman um, uh, kills the first of the? I don't remember what the name of of the first character is that she kills, but she tells her daughter like, "One day you're going to come to kill me," and it's yeah. it's almost just like granting it. Like, yeah, that's right. going to happen. Right. And I understand. Yeah, and that's, that's how, if you that's don't how feel do. good about this, you know, like I'll, I'll, I'm not, I'll be in the phone book essentially. Uh, you can, you can, <laughs> you, you can track me down. I'll totally understand. I'm not saying I won't defend myself, but right, you know, right? It'll be a fight, but I'll be older. Yeah, <laughs> probably. <get> exactly. <laughs> Ethan Hawke will have gotten on my, on my nerves so much by then. Like I'm probably just, I'll probably want to die at that point. Uh, I probably might even might even marry Quentin Tarantino like he wants me to. Um, <laughs> so anyway, it's it's really good. We I, I I'm gonna try my best to convince you to do a, a, a whole because there's so many interesting philosophical. I'm down to take a Xanax and watch the trilogy and talk about it. Don't you know, take a I just, Xanax. I'm just a sen- I'm just a sensitive soul. Like I just you need to yeah. channel that. Uh, what's his face, Doctor Notorious Scientist dude, uh, uh, and, and just. Osmandus, yeah. yeah, and yeah, I, uh, he, and suffer. He's my IQ for good. Yeah. Um, all right, all right. My Your number, number one. one. It's it's predictable, and it's there's no shades of gray, and it's the just the kind of of movie that you would think I'd put it in my number one, which is The Dark Knight. And you know, I can't. There are there are a few reasons that that this movie goes in my top slot. One is because I'm a Batman junkie. Um, Batman, I think, is. For all of the for all of the black and white good and evil uh, caricature that of morality the comic books um, have in their history, Batman was I think the one character who who brought in the shades of gray with his desire for vigilante justice. Um, this is this is nothing new. The Dark Knight is stop the presses. Gabe Pizarro yeah, says. <laughs> That Batman has some complexity and <laughs> well, you know, I, even when I say that though, the nerd in me is like, well, it depends which ba- which incarnation of Batman we're talking about. So this right. is the Frank. This is very much the Frank Miller um, incarnation of Batman. Where I think the Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of a- one, right, with the <laughs> Frozone or whatever. No, oh my God, those were so bad. Um, 
Uh, yeah, so so this this movie has more than than one moral dilemma. So Batman is has the Joker as a villain, and Harvey Dent emerges as a villain. Harvey Dent is Two Face. He's the district attorney who gets in an accident and um, and starts you know has a psychopathic side, multiple personalities. So you know, there are, there are a lot of choices in this movie that Batman has to make. I mean, one just the character of Batman is interesting, and he's he's this weirdly sort of. He's willing to do what the police would never do, what institutions won't aren't willing to do. Um, the the police commissioner has essentially granted him freedom in doing this because it gets the job done. But he also has this very strong absolutist moral code about not killing. So there are a couple there are a couple of dilemmas. One, there's a really straightforward traditional moral dilemma. It's almost out of Josh Green's studies, yeah. um, which is that the Joker puts you know he he has two boats that are going to explode and it's like a you know if you if one boat decides if the people in one of the boats decides to press the button it'll destroy the other boat so it's basically like who's willing to push the button first and and the both boats will he'll kill both and boats both, and both boats right. will explode if so it's a similar anything. structure to the watchman thing yeah right so so both will die if nobody does anything and the great decision by one of the convicts who's in one of the boats is it, he says that he's going to do it because nobody has the the guts to press the button and kill everybody but everybody wants it to happen so this guy gets up and he says no no I'll do it and everybody's relieved because he's going to kill everybody you know he'll the the blood will be on his head and so he grabs it and he just throws the button out the window right commitment device. <laughs> That's a Bob Frank solution right there. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, so another moral dilemma is – well, it's not really a moral dilemma. It's more a personal dilemma. Batman has to decide who to save. Uh, Harvey Dent, the district attorney who's done – who is essentially um, bringing the city finally, like bringing – cleaning up the city and getting a ton of work done. He's very effective. He's been the victim of, of the Joker's you know, the plot um, and, or his friend. Right, uh, and, and a, a woman he loves, right? I mean, a, a woman that he loves and who he grew up with. Um, yeah. you're, Tamler's going to kill me, but I'm blanking on the actress's name. Maggie Gyllenhaal. Maggie Gyllenhaal, and I wanted to point out um, something that I've always noticed. Maggie Gyllenhaal looks like that character Droopy, the cartoon character, like a Hanna Barbera cartoon or something. And it was a little dog who was always depressed. And his oh face yeah, yeah. Was, yeah, and he would say, "Hello, all you happy people." Like something yeah. Like that. I promise you, if you just Google Maggie Gyllenhaal and Droopy, you'll see side by sides, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. So, <laughs> so, so it's Katie Holmes in the first one. Yeah, and and Maggie Gyllenhaal. Do you think I mean, that I, would have made a difference in terms of who he would have saved? I think that Maggie Gyllenhaal can act circles around Katie Holmes. So, but you would save Katie I, Holmes? No, I would not. No, I would not. I cannot. I I, I am not a fan of the people Christopher Nolan chose to play. I like I like Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I do. I do too. I just can't, I can't help it if she looks like a cartoon character from my childhood. The final dilemma is really the one of the commissioner, which is a little bit like the magistrate and the mob dilemma, which is how the movie ends. Harvey Dent has is presumed uh, presumed dead, but he turns into Two Face, and uh, but he was such a hero to Gotham and has inspired so many people to act, you know, in ways that will improve the horrible city that is Gotham that to tell everybody that he's actually turned into this horrible villain now or that he and that he actually did some really fucked up shit at the end um, would ruin it. 
Batman agrees to be the villain, right? So he he says, let me take the heat. I was already kind of like suspect in the eyes of so many. It wouldn't be so weird to think that I, I went rogue and turned bad. So the movie has... You but know, it is the dilemma for the for the commissioner. Does for, he it is the dilemma for the commissioner. To and lie, carries over to the next uh, And it carries to over next to the next movie. one, right? And yeah. it, actually, it actually ends up biting him in the ass, which is, do you, do you lie in order to... In order to for the greater good to happen. And, and, you know, in this sense, Christopher Nolan has done exactly what we're saying is, is a little bit cheaterish. It's like, well, yeah, he did it for the greater good, but, oh, but in the end, in the end, it was the wrong decision because you shouldn't lie. Um, I, I think I mean, it does point out that sometimes when you make the utilitarian decision, you're doing it under, you know, you're doing it under uncertainty oh, conditions. Imperfect of information, exactly, yeah. exactly, and that's you know, it, it may not be a flaw for a normative theory because you can always say, well, look, like you can, you you act on the best information that you have, but even if it is defensible as a normative account, it still means that every once in a while you're going to have some shit happen, right? And maybe a lot more than every once in a while. I mean, and this maybe is, a lot more, yeah. and like, and you know, and the thing is. As as some of some of the more famous utilitarian defenses have pointed out, people don't like utilitarianism. So even if you're utilitarian, maybe it's a good thing to not let people know that you are right. right? So Sidgwick has this Henry Sidgwick, the philosopher, has this great quote about uh, about just you know we're on the club. We all know what the right thing to do is. We're all utilitarians, but probably better not tell anybody. Well, and in fact, that's the utilitarian decision. That's what the irony of the whole thing is that the right thing to do as a utilitarian might be to, to, to not a tell people that you are a utilitarian, but also to not have them be utilitarians because they might yeah. not make the They're right decision. They're going to be good ones, exactly. Yeah. You don't want dumb people being utilitarians and like, I did the math. No, I shouldn't do it for an accent. <laughs> North There's no accent you can do to sound dumb that's not offending someone. <laughs> I just made the utilitarian decision. For the greater good, uh, like Cletus, uh, like Cletus, yeah, that's where I, that's what I was going for. Right. You know, not, uh, <laughs> not the South, not the South in general. Um, so, uh, so, so, yeah, you know, and this, this is why I love comic books. Comic books are, are just tailor made for for moral puzzles and dilemmas, and and they're just fun. They're consequence free ways. Of, you know, I don't have to sit through the pain of like. Uh, old boy and and really really have to sit through the, the, the it's not pain making... though no well you know, you know what i'm saying like it's i'm i'm with you i like that moves people i'm saying i don't have to no no, no but it's also old boy the old boy and lady event uh, sympathy for mr vengeance are different like old boy is just like a thrilling movie with just so much momentum and energy yeah. sympathy for mr vengeance is tough like it took me a long time to and i've now seen it like three or four times it took me a long time to see it as second time even though i knew that i loved it it was like i don't want to have to sit through this again uh, yeah, old boy's not I, like that like old boy i'll throw on anytime because it's just so much fun it's got so yeah, much yeah, energy no. all right my number one I, I think i've talked about it on this podcast i won't uh i won't spend too much time on it probably one of my 10 favorite movies of all time and it's the third man you know what that was uh, yeah i i almost put that on my list i watched it because you mentioned it on the podcast yeah. 
And and it's 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 a fantastic movie. It's, a lot of people think it was directed by Orson Welles, but it's not. Right. It, it's directed by Carol Reed. Stars Orson Welles. I think we've even played a, the, a clip from we did, it. The we famous did play clip. A clip. Yeah, when they're in the is it the Ferris wheel. Yeah, the Ferris wheel yeah. clip. Joseph Cotton plays this pulp novelist who comes to post-war Vienna to investigate a, the disappearance of his old friend uh, Harry Lyme, played by Orson Welles. Um, and everyone thinks he's dead, but Joseph Cotton's or Holly Martin's, the character, is suspicious. So Martin does some digging around. He ends up meeting Harry Lyme's old girlfriend, played by this very moody actress, a depressed actress. Uh, well, I don't know if she's, she may have been a cheery person, but in the movie, the character. <laughs> that, by the way, shall we say, so he's supposed to have died in a car accident or something, right? Yeah. In some, yeah. And there's some man that was also there at the time that nobody's accounted for in this right. car accident. And that's the third man. Right. So yeah, he ends up starting to have a, a, a brief affair with this ex-girlfriend of Harry Lyme, but she clearly still lo- is in love with, with Harry. So over the course of the movie, and I'm not worried about spoiling this so much, you learn, because hopefully you all have seen it. Even if you haven't seen it, I think that the, the movie is is just, well, we'll talk about why it's so good, even if you know it. I mean, it's so, it's it's, it's one of the most beautifully shot movies That's ever. Right. This is another reason why people think Orson Welles directed it. It's directed in that style that he sort of pioneered in, uh, well, I don't know if he pioneered it, but he certainly pioneered it for American directors in, in Citizen Kane with those angles and the black and white shots it's, of Vienna. And, yeah, it's angular shots with shadows and, and the streets uh, of Vienna. It's just gorgeous. I spent like two weeks in Vienna for some workshop, right? It was my first year in graduate school. And they just play The Third Man in Vienna at this old theater. And I just went. I probably saw it like three times there That's and awesome. just walked around Vienna. And it's That's just awesome. so cool. It was so That's awesome. awesome. You know what would be cool? If you could put on glasses that made you see black and white. Only. <laughs> yeah. You know, you could walk around like you're you're in cinema. Every once in a while, <laughs> like I, I have I have this desire to watch some one of those cool old film noir like black and white movies. They're gorgeous. Anyway. No. Yeah. Because because of you mentioning it, like I went on as if you've listened to these episodes, I went on a kick. I started just watching. I mean, there's so many great. Even the bad ones are good. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Because they all have good, fun performances. I, also, I like the hard boiled stuff. You know, even when it's corny, it's great. Yeah. The, the the femme fatales in them yeah. okay. and the fast talking you learn over the course of the movie that harry limes may still be alive and that if he is he's running the black market for antibiotics that are scarce after the war but he's watering down these diluting the antibiotics which ends up leading to a lot of deaths including children's deaths and there's this great scene in the ferris wheel probably won't play this clip because we've already played on the podcast but where he just he's he, he finally meets joseph cotton in there at the top of the ferris wheel and he says look at all these little dots if one of those dots disappear how sad would you be right uh, and that's exactly the opposite of what ozymandias is saying right right yeah, Ozymandias, and you don't know if he's being disingenuous, but that's what he's trying to protect against. He's exactly. Saying, don't think I'm like that. Right. Don't don't yeah. think I'm like Harry Lyme. Don't right. think I think these things are just statistics, because right. right. I don't. You know. Right. And Harry Lyme on the on he he's practically boasting about seeing people as statistics, and it's not like he has good moral reasons. He has reasons just to make himself rich. For right. This. He's not a consequentialist. <laughs> right. This isn't. Right. So here's the dilemma. Uh, and it relates to our snitching episode and our whistleblowing episode. Does Joseph Cotton turn in his old friend? Like the, the only way they're going to catch him is if he 
really double crosses his old friend Harry Lime and and helps the police out because he's really well hidden and the police aren't the police have been looking for him for a long time and they're not going to find him without Joseph Cotton's help and so does he set him up it, it's beyond just snitching because he knows he actually has to help them catch him right right the dilemma is he knows that if he doesn't do that you know that harry lime will probably get away with this and he may still go on to uh to commit these kinds of crimes now you might think this is a no-brainer and in one sense it kind of is because harry lime what he's doing the, yeah, it's the so head cop it's so despicable exactly yeah. that you might think he owes him nothing but what's really interesting about the movie is the ex-girlfriend is so appalled that Joseph Cotton is even considering yeah. turning his friend in. And then when she, and I'm again, spoiler alert, I guess, but right. he does. He ends up yeah. doing it and she never forgives him for this. Yeah. She says, how could you do this? He was your friend. He's like, because he's killing little kids. And she's like, yeah. he was your friend. You know, and that, the scene at the end is just heartbreaking with her walking by him. Yeah, just like ugh. oh god, and the oh. music of this movie. And you know when it just Harry Lyme doesn't do the Orson Welles character doesn't do himself any favors, obviously by presenting himself as as the moral monster that he is, but it's still a dilemma. Yeah, um, but I think as a viewer, it's not one of the. I think what makes it more interesting to me is not that I'm rooting for the Orson Welles character. Right. It's that in some ways the Orson Welles character Harry Lyme knows what's going to happen. Yeah. He's, you know, do what you got to do. You know, he's he's. You kind of are rooting for him because he's charming, not because right. he's he's defensive. I don't know if you're rooting for him, but you no, you're not you rooting. understand that this is more of a dilemma than it, than it sounds like if you describe it. You understand his – with a lot of these movies, you you don't under, understand why a woman like this this uh, character would, would love him and why a guy like Joseph Cotton would have been friends with him. But you understand right. it in this case. Exactly, exactly. What I was going to say is that – as somebody who grew up, uh, my early childhood was probably on the tail end of Orson Welles um, being somebody right. in the popular sphere. By that time, he was just kind of like kooky and fat and weird. Yeah, and, he was that uh, fat and, guy. Yeah, and that Orson Welles character would never uh, have the sympathy of the viewer. You know, but no. This is young, charming, uh, black and white Orson Welles. What the fella said... In Italy, for 30 years under the Borgias, they had warfare, terror, murder, and bloodshed, but they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, and the Renaissance. In Switzerland, they had brotherly love. They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. One of my favorite scenes is when he finally emerges from the shadows and his friend realizes that he's alive, um, which is just a brilliant scene. Okay. And he gives this little smile yeah. you know, that is just like he doesn't even like is not even acknowledging how fucked up it is that your friend has thought that you're dead. And like yeah. he's been on this quest. He's like, hey, what's up? <laughs> uh, how's it going? It's really interesting. I, I also think that, you know, from her point of view, 
you, I, 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 this is one of these things that I think from a modern philosophical perspective, the idea that you might have such a strong duty to your friend to not do something that directly leads them to be caught and probably killed, no matter who they are, is, is, is an alien conception, I think, to, to a lot of people. But I hope it's not that alien to that many people. You know? I, I, hope I, so think that, I think that probably we, we're, we're in, we've said this before. We're in circles where it just doesn't – it's not allowed to emerge. Great, uh, number one. Just, All right. Real quick honorable mentions. Any – what do you have? Oh, man. I don't have my honorable mention list, dude. All right, well, I have enough. My spoiler category, another South Korean movie that I strongly recommend, uh, Mother. Did you ever see that? You should see uh, that. That's a no. tough one, though. No. Uh, the Maltese Falcon, another great film noir. Oh, Seven. Seven, I think you would have to spoil to really get at that moral dilemma right at the end. Brad, Brad Pitt is hilarious in that last scene. Yeah. Is, What's in the box? What's in the box? <laughs> What's in the box? <laughs> Oh my god, we gotta I want a sound bite of that. Solaris and Shutter Island are a little too close to personal identity or I might have considered those movies interesting uh, moral dilemmas. Um Indecent Proposal and, and and the Box, which is based on this horrible short story, Button Button, that's just ridiculous, but has this supposed oh, dilemma. Yeah, it's not even a moral right. dilemma. It's, it's, it's like whether you press the button to get some money. To to no, someone you do not know will die. Will die, right. And but then it turns money. out to be her husband. Yeah. And she's oh, like spoiler. How do, you said I wouldn't know the person and the guy comes in and says, Did you really know your husband? Yeah, so God, yeah. can you imagine if Hell yes spoiler. I knew my husband. They're like, look, here, come in. Yeah, come can. here. Come here. Look, I'm gonna show you our wedding photos. <laughs> <laughs> Sit down. <laughs> Did you? You're using the word no in a way that I did not anticipate. It's like a philosopher. <laughs> yeah, uh, with, there are there are conversational norms. It, no, it's you like just had justified belief in your husband. You didn't know. <laughs> you didn't know him. He was a barn. He was a um, <laughs> um, beast of the southern wild. Has an interesting moral dilemma from the father's perspective. I had three ten to Yuma, which you had in the Dark Knight, Casablanca. The Insider. The Insider was a category that we sort of missed, which was like duty to society versus duty to your family. Donnie Brasco is a really interesting, speaking of snitch, sort of rat. Uh, That's a great movie. Uh, Shane has a cool dilemma towards the end. Do the right thing. (laughs) How did do the right thing not make either of our lists? I mean, I guess. Uh, Because I think that throwing the trash can through the window at the end isn't even a dilemma. It's just awesome. It's like. Just Spike Lee, grab that trash can. Start some shit. Uh, oh, yeah. Someone, a, a Rob Sicka uh, suggested Princess Mononoke, which I've seen and I totally believe him. Oh, yeah. I just couldn't remember. I don't remember at all. Oh, yeah. Um, um, for the record, I just want to point out that uh, my, my um, honorable mention list was on my laptop. <laughs> And my laptop is in the hand. Maybe it's in the hands of some very fortunate American Airlines employee who who (laughs) does things like keep laptops that were left on planes. And is now just in a porn utopia. Is the no, no, that's I I know encryption methods enough (laughs) to 
Thanks to all the listeners who gave us. I that think was great. there's a good part. There's a good percentage of our list that were suggested by listeners, and at least in one case for me, I put one on because it, you know to jog my memory and maybe a couple. So thanks to all of you. We uh, we love that. We love hearing from you. And keep yeah, that's it up. the one thing I got to say about about movie episodes is that it, it brings out the uh, discussion. Yeah, glad you acknowledge that. All right, um, we'll be back uh, next time. Join us for very bad wizards. Just a very bad wizard.